0: In today's networking world, we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we are reminded day in and day out the importance of the network. Data networks are the infrastructure that connects all of us for businesses to operate, for entertainment at home, for people to look for employment opportunities, and for e-learning and homeschooling while schools are closed. The network is actually how we connect with other people while maintaining social distancing. Now let's pause for a second here and reflect on the past 60 days. What if we lost our network connection and had to adjust to a shelter-in-place life? The only feed into our lives is what's broadcasted over the airwaves into our TVs, just like how our parents and grandparents went through the social or economic downturn. It wouldn't be just the annoyance of the shortage of toilet paper. In this episode, we are shining a light on some real networking heroes in our community. An organization called ITDRC, the Information Technology Disaster Resource Center. These are the folks who, when a natural disaster has occurred or when a pandemic breaks out, are pre-staging equipment and gathering personnel to head into the affected location and assist with relief efforts. They assist in the form of standing up ad ad hoc networks, wired networks for first responders and displaced families who need to communicate with the outside world. The network is an essential part to disaster relief. It helps us communicate public safety reports and facilitate information sharing in a time of crisis or distress. In uncertain times, having little pieces of certainty and bi-directional information flow is a gradual confidence boost and hope builder to get us back on our feet, to believe that tomorrow will be a better day. So sit back while we talk about disaster relief efforts and how the network helps save the day. I'm Tony E. and I have Jordan Martin with me. And today on the Network Collective, we're joined by Andrew White and Dustin Lee of ITDRC. They're here with us to share some of their stories and educate us all on what it takes to be part of the digital relief efforts for man-made natural disasters. We're going to hear about the organization and the cool nerdy networking things that go into the digital disaster relief efforts. Andrew, Dustin, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, Thanks Uh, for having
2: me. Glad to be here.
0: So before we actually uh, uh, do a deep dive into the organization and the cool tech you guys are using, um, I want to get a little bit of background on each of you. So, if you could, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your professional background? Let's start with Andrew.
1: Uh, yeah, so my name is Andrew White. I am the Region 6 Director for ITDRC. So, I have responsibility over uh, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. And um, I am an IT person by trade. I started out as a medic, uh, worked as a network engineer for a long time. Um, uh, owned the audio video conferencing and unified communications for Citigroup globally, and then um, had the opportunity to go work for DHS, helping them develop programs to train responders to use IT as a part of um, their response efforts. And then I'm also a member of a FEMA search and rescue team um, as a communications specialist. So I'm kind of heavy in this space. Wow. you really got a lot going on. And Dustin, let's hear a
2: little bit about you. Sure. Uh, so I am the Region Nine director, or one of the Region Nine directors for IT DRC. Um, but today I'm actually managing our overall COVID 19 operations uh, nationwide. Um, I got started in this back in 2013 with Typhoon Haiyan. Uh, so, um, not with IT DRC, but with uh, the UN. Um, there was a big typhoon in the Philippines, and I was trying to figure out how I could use my, my personal skills and geekery and <laughs> Uh, affinity for technology for the better of of the the people who are being who had been affected by that by that hurricane. Um, so I signed up to volunteer with the UN um, and had no idea what I was doing for the first deployment. Uh, but uh, I, it was it really changed my life in many ways um, because I was able to see the impact that technology was able to make uh, in a very immediate sense uh on on the effectiveness of the response and on people's lives uh in that situation um so i i uh was with the un for for a while uh i did also the uh ebola response in sierra leone um and then i did another uh volunteer gig down in vanuatu with the uh, typhoon pam um actually met a team from Cisco called Cisco Tactical Operations, uh, and I was like, "Oh, these guys! Uh, obviously, they're from a company that powers a good bit of the internet, um, and they they clearly know what they're doing in, on the networking side. So maybe I should join up with them." And, and that's what I did. Uh, so uh, I was with Cisco TacOps Ops uh, for about I think two and a half years, uh, and um, and did a bunch of responses with them, uh, including. Uh, Hurricane Irma and uh, and a bunch of others. Um, and then uh, just uh, a few months ago, I I uh, switched over and joined ITDRC because I've been volunteering with ITDRC for now closer to three, three and a half years. Um, and it's been uh, uh, amazing to see what kind of impact this uh, nonprofit has made, been able to make on people's lives.
0: Yeah, very cool, guys. Thank you. And actually, something that both of you have mentioned um, that I, I was hoping someone could explain is, um, Andrew, you mentioned your Region 6. And yeah. Dustin, you said your
1: uh, Region 9. Uh-huh. Can you guys talk about the regions? Sure. Um, so FEMA divides the United States into 10 regions. Um, and we have chosen to to align our organization to the FEMA regions. Um, So each region tends to have between three to five states. Uh, And then uh, for us, because our organization is big enough, we actually um, have a layer above that. So we we, we do um, divisions as well, uh, an eastern, central and western division. Um, And then those divisions each have three to five or or, I'm sorry, two to four uh, of the regions below them. Um, Okay, it helps us to helps us to plan for um, responses. uh, You you know, if, if we can. Um, think about uh, logistics in terms of a specific region of the country. It, it allows us to build a roadmap for for deployment a little bit more efficiently.
0: Yeah, very cool. So, so ITDRC—that's what uh, the organization that, that both of you guys are representing. So, what kind of work does ITDRC do? Let's dive into the organization a little bit. Um, um, how do you guys? Uh, what kind of work do you guys do?
2: All right, I guess I'll jump in here. Uh, So we do pretty much anything that's tech-related for disasters or post-disaster. So anywhere from the um, uh, immediate response and relief phase to the recovery phase of disasters, uh, what we do is we try to fill in the gaps uh, in between when, for example, you lose critical infrastructure after a hurricane uh, until the commercial service providers can, can come back and. Folks can get back online. Um, so, if you think about, for example, uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, uh, so a devastating hurricane uh, really impacted the, the the critical infrastructure of the island and and many of the surrounding islands uh, quite severely. Meaning that you know you lost cell service uh, right across the island, you lost power, uh, you lost the ability to. Um, to contact fam- your family. Uh, so if you're on one side of the island and you want to make sure your family was OK on the other side of the island, there was really no way to do that until uh, until cell service or, or communications was restored. So, um, so that's one piece of it. Uh, of course, communications is also critical for the first responders. So we're talking about medical services, public safety services, emergency operations, management, um, being able to uh, send an email, to get on the phone, uh, even to you know go on an instant messaging platform like WhatsApp or whatever it is, uh, that all of that is critical to being able to coordinate uh, an effective disaster response. And I'm sure Andrew uh, will speak a lot more to this because that's kind of his bread and butter. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so so ITDRC we we come in after these disasters uh, and we're able to set up the critical infrastructure. Um, whether it's for uh, providing internet to uh, emergency operations or uh, setting up a Wi-Fi hotspot at a pharmacy so that people can get the prescriptions or uh, setting up uh, internet at a medical facility so that uh, doctors can use their electronic patient records. Um, so, so that's kind of what we do in a very broad sense, bringing technology to the disaster uh, to fill in the gaps there. You know, I want to I
0: want to jump in here and just take a pause and just say, like, this is why at the top of the show in the intro, I called you guys the real heroes, because here we are at a, you know, stay at home, social distancing thing. And most of us in the beginning were worried about toilet paper, but we still had the Internet. We could still pick up the phones and call family members and check on people across the country and across the globe. And you guys are out there helping to facilitate the communication for a lot of the first responders and a lot of these pop-up tents uh, that are doing uh, medical services uh, for this uh, current pandemic we're in. And I don't think most of us throughout the country haven't experienced a real network outage the way you described what happened in Puerto Rico and how important your efforts were down there. So I really think it's really, truly awesome work that you guys are doing. The real heroes bringing internet connectivity, something that a lot of us have taken for granted over the past few years uh, and bringing that to the places who need it the most. That's really awesome
1: stuff. I appreciate that. Honestly, it takes a village, right? You know, I think uh, there's a lot of people involved in uh, uh, helping a community get back up after they get knocked over. Um, I think, uh, you know, kind of building what Dustin said, uh, after Hurricane Harvey, FEMA um, introduced an idea called Lifelines. Um, And there's, there's seven of them. Uh, But one of the fundamental lifelines is communication. So if you think about it, um, they they consider communications to be a more fundamental lifeline for a community even than, um, you know, uh, the ability to buy food, um, mass care, all those things. Because uh, we can't coordinate any of those other lifelines if we can't talk to each other. Um, So it ends up becoming absolutely crucial uh, over time.
3: I'm curious about some of the coordination of that. So obviously, you know, uh, Dustin, you mentioned Cisco Tech Ops, which is an organization I'm familiar with and uh, has done a lot of fantastic work for uh, for really very little press. Right? Like usually, you get big companies in that do good things, and they, they do it they do it to be good, but they also do it because it's good press, and you don't really hear a lot about Cisco Tech Ops. But there's an organization that's doing something very similar, like. It, clearly, it, it's aligned with what ITD DRC is doing. I know there are other organizations out there that do this. So when this happens, like you guys have aligned yourself with FEMA, I mean, I can't imagine it can't just be the wild, wild west, right? So how does how do you guys get yourself wrapped up into that response and and, and coordinated as part of that response rather than just kind of like stepping in and and causing more harm than good? You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. there's there's a structure to this, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, rule number one in the emergency management community, and this is, and we hold this in violet, is um, you do not self deploy. Um, the, the reason why is the community is already overwhelmed, and the influx of stuff and people and all of that just adds to the problem. Um, so uh, I think the reason why I offer that first is because our respect for that, um, that principle has allowed us to ingratiate ourselves in, into these communities because. Um, We're not there at the first minutes, right? We're we're trying to figure out the appropriate time and and mechanism to to get involved. Um, The other part uh, that's really important in the emergency management community is um, having a good network of people. Um, So partly why we divide the U.S. into different regions is each regional director is responsible for building a network of relationships that um, allows us to... uh, reach out when when a specific part of the country has been impacted and, and offers our services so uh you know for example during during this current covid response um i'm very close with a lot of the emergency management at a state level in the state of texas so you know i started calling them and saying what what kinds of needs are you having and as we were starting to set up uh mobile testing sites it was very clear that that was not going to be very effective without networking and so um we were given the tasking to go and support those mobile teams driving around. So that typically it's a combination of our knowing people who maybe know people who know people who can get us an introduction. And, um, you know, usually what happens is once people hear about us, they put us on speed dial. So, um, like we, we went out to uh, surf city, North Carolina for hurricane Florence. Um, they'd never heard of us and we did our thing and got introduced and went out and helped them. Um, I would bet you, we were one of their first three calls they made during COVID um to to get back out there and support them so you know we don't we don't tend to want for business after we've been somewhere
3: that makes sense and and, uh, then i really was looking for that you know we don't self-deploy the ideas you know we build relationships and make ourselves available now you guys are uh a volunteer-based organization or are there people full-time staff or is it a hybrid of those two things
1: i don't think we have any full timers, right? I mean, we kind of every now and then we do, but I think Chris uh, Chris uh, Hillis, who's one of our, uh, he's the chairman of our board of directors, uh, I think might kind of be a full time. Okay. <laughs> generally, <laughs> generally, oh, so yeah.
3: generally, generally, it's, yeah. it's volunteer or part time type type responsibilities here. You're doing this in addition to a day job.
1: Uh, yep, absolutely.
3: Yeah. Okay. So so I mean, like as an organization like that, it takes a lot. I mean, what you're talking about, we again just drawing a parallel with Cisco TAC Ops where they have a whole team of people that are full-time people. Like that's what they do. You know, like that's their job it's what they get paid to do. And they're ready to deploy at a moment. They've got gear and equipment and all kinds of things that are available to them from a resource perspective. How does it DRC handle that from a volunteer basis? And then uh, there's equipment involved in this. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you can't just show up with your bare hands and make communication happen. There's gear and there's whatever. So like, so what's the strategy there? Like, how do you guys, how do you guys deal with that?
2: Yeah, that's really one of the things that I was really amazed by. Um, while I was both with Cisco TechOps and also a volunteer with ITDRC, it was always amazing to me um, what ITDRC as an organization was able to accomplish with pr- uh, primarily volunteer labor. I mean, we we have about two thousand volunteers who contribute to our our ability to to be prepared as well as to respond to these disasters. Um, but I think the the heart and soul of it is is really our uh, incredible um uh leadership and organization structure um where we're able to to really mobilize the the workforce uh, of, of volunteers when, when we want to uh, and also uh it's it's with our incredible volunteer base so we have uh all these amazing folks from really incredible tech partners uh, across the the us so um you know folks who are, are are super super smart i mean these are some of the best people i've ever had the opportunity to work with um, in in IT DRC, uh, it's 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 really it's really crazy. Like uh, so, of course, we have all your all your kind of top tier tech companies that that you would typically think of. So we got the 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 Cisco's, the Amazon's, the Google's, the the Facebooks, HP, Dell's, Ruckus, Arubas, and I, I apologize because I'm going to omit a bunch of names here. But but all, all these really really awesome engineers um, who in m- many cases these are the folks who develop the product lines that we use for, for disaster response. Right. Um, so, uh, if we ever have, uh, if we ever come across a problem when we're trying to deploy, uh, any particular piece of gear, we can sometimes oftentimes go back to the folks who were involved in engineering, uh, that product, uh, for, for assistance. So, so that's, that's really cool. Um, so we've got like, again, so we've got about 2000 volunteers who help, to drive this effort. Uh, and it's like Andrew said, it's really a village that, that makes this happen.
1: Yeah, in fact, another anecdote that I love, kind of building on what Dustin said, uh, during Harvey, we were helping out um, a school that uh, was smart and tried to have a primary data center and a backup data center. Um, obviously, schools don't have a lot of choice in terms of geography. And um, both the data centers ended up underwater as a result of the hurricane. Uh, and they lost uh, their core switch in each of the two data centers, which obviously is pretty devastating. Um, so they were kind of wondering if they were even going to be able to have a school system because they can't make payroll and they can't, you know, there wouldn't be nothing that they could do. Uh, so it, it was it was awesome that we started putting out um, messages to our volunteers about, you know, that they had a, um, a cat 6513 switch for their um, for their core. Right. And in the, the chassis, we were able to find another chassis. And we put it out to the volunteers and, you know, folks had blades laying around the data centers that were getting ready to go away because they were moving up to nexus switches and stuff. And, you know, it took us about two weeks to pieces, parts, all the all the gear together. Um, but we were able to basically, you know, get them new equipment and uh, and 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 get them back online. So, you know, I, I think there's um there's there's kind of a cool uh, I don't want to call it a counterculture, but there's, there's sort of this, you know, sub Teranian group that nobody really realizes kind of exists that so we can reach out and and uh, you know pull off some magic.
0: Uh, so, so Dustin was just talking about some of the v- volunteers and, and how some of the, the big names, the big product vendors are uh, often um, are some of the volunteers or, or engineers that come from those companies. Um, but I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about the volunteer profiles for people who don't work for Cisco or Facebook or Google, um, someone who's working for a, a small consulting firm and, and sort of how they can volunteer and, and the
2: sort of profiles of people like that. Yeah. So, think, oh,
1: go, right. ahead, Josh. go ahead, Go <laughs> ahead. Uh,
2: so, so there are lots of different types of volunteers. Of course, we've got the technical volunteers uh, who really know their uh, the networking. Uh, so, layers two through seven um, that's that's certainly core to what we do from a, a, a connectivity perspective. Um, uh, but then we've also got you know the, the layer one folks, and you, you'd be really amazed at, at uh, I think when a lot of people first think about how you do internet in a disaster. They think of all the layer 2 to 7 stuff, right? Um, but uh, what it takes to get internet on the ground in a Hurricane Maria or Hurricane Harvey or uh, after an earthquake, um, what that means is you're, you're pulling cable through dusty attics, or uh, you're, um, you're trying to set up a VSAT or a, a satellite dish in order to pull internet from the sky. Um, you're, sometimes you're climbing towers. Uh, sometimes, uh, you're, you're setting up point to point links. So there's a lot of layer one cabling and, uh, just operating hammer drills and, and zip ties and duct tape. Um, so that's, so that's, but that's just the technical side of things. Uh, in addition to that, of course, there's a lot of logistics that goes into all our operational response. So, um, we've got a whole warehouse full of equipment, uh, down in, uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Um, And that houses uh, a lot of our gear, but we've also got caches of of gear that's staged around the country in in warehouses and trailers uh, so that it's it's closer to disaster response and and able to be deployed more quickly. Um, So, of course, we have some really smart logistics folks who help us to manage all of that because we've got thousands and thousands of pieces of gear that we have to be able to keep track of so that you know when disaster hits and we know that we need this one model of router so that we can restore someone's rack, uh, we know where to find that. So that's the logistics piece of it. Uh, in addition to that, we've got the project management. So um, that's largely what I'm doing today with COVID-19, uh, trying to manage all these different moving pieces of our volunteers and our property and technology and how do we get back all to all these different sites? Uh, how do we vet the sites that we're getting requests for? Um, how do we uh, plan for the next, even the next week? Like what, do, what are our folks, our volunteers going to be doing uh, tomorrow and the week beha- after that? What are our priorities and uh, in, in, uh, how do we most effectively make an impact on, on this disaster?
1: Yeah, and I, I can't stress enough that um, the non-technical folks are what makes what we do work um, you know, cause we got, you know, in addition to that, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to get people fed. We gotta figure out how to get people plane tickets. We gotta figure out where people are going to sleep. Um, right. So there's a lot of opportunities to get involved if you don't know much about technology, or if you are just starting as an IT person, you want to learn more, right. You know, we can, we can bring you in and, you know, you'll, you may end up doing more of those logistics type stuff while you're, you're learning the ropes. And then, you know, it's a win-win, right. Because now you're, you're getting IT skills that you can take back to, advance your career. And, you know, we've got a person that's filling some gaps um, from a staffing standpoint. Yeah.
0: And, um, and at the bottom of the show, we're going to include all of the contact information in case anyone wants to volunteer or donate or anything like that uh, to help ITDRC and the community. Um, uh, But, 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 also, I want to talk about how can someone become a, a volunteer. Uh, meaning, is there IT training? You just said you'll take someone with uh, who wants to learn more about IT. Do you guys do IT training Are there certifications? Uh, what does it take to become a volunteer?
1: Yeah, so the, that that's a that's a big deal. Um, the there are two classes that you have to take that are offered by FEMA. Um, there, there's a concept in the emergency response world called the incident command structure. That is, um, it, it's it's part of the um, National, National Incident Management System, which is something that um, was created to, to organize the way all agencies and responding organizations react to an incident. So um, a, a big part of what what it takes to be deployable with us is taking the classes that help you understand that framework so that um, you, you know where you fit and understand what's going on. Um, That's a big one. I would highly recommend taking that um, anyway, even if you didn't volunteer with ITDRC, because for example, if you get hit with ransomware and the FBI shows up, they're going to use ICS and you're going to spend your first days of your response taking ICS classes so that you know how to integrate with the FBI, Um, you know, things like that. Right. But anyway, so those classes are, um, are a big part of it. Uh, We have a, a deployment class where we kind of teach people how to be safe downrange. Um, and, and then there's, uh, an introduction class that, that where we show people some of our technical capabilities, um, and then most, the rest of it is mentoring, uh, because like I said earlier, uh, relationships are a big part of being successful in in response. So for us, uh, I think it's more important for us to partner you up with somebody and have you learn from them than to just give you some YouTube videos to watch and, you know, tell you, we'll see at the next big one.
3: A moment ago, you guys mentioned, uh, logistics. And uh, like this to me, I think is is probably one of the more interesting topics. So technical skills, lots of people have technical skills. People volunteer because they're good. You know, like that doesn't surprise me. I get all of that. Uh, and it's awesome. I'm not trying to downplay it at all. It's really cool that people, spe- you know, donate their time. But you just mentioned you have thousands of pieces of gear sitting in warehouses and trailers and whatever. And you have a logistic system there. And when I think about disaster response, I think about the fact that usually the infrastructure is in some crumbled state like that's the reason why you're deploying so getting equipment places can be a challenge and uh, um you know so like so can you talk through that like what does that look like from your like if you have a piece of equipment sitting in a trailer somewhere and it needs to make it to some caribbean island because they've been hit by a major hurricane or it needs to be you know sent to some place that doesn't have great um, infrastructure at the moment. What does that look like? How do you guys handle that? I imagine there's like several tiers. Like, I, I, I'm just curious what that looks like inside of ITDRC.
2: Yeah, so, so it's definitely the, the Caribbean islands and the Hurricane Maria's. That, that was certainly one of the more challenging uh, operations that we had to do. Um, the the easier ones, which I'll talk about first. Um, so those are the ones who are that, that are on the continental US. So um, let's say we have a tornado that affects a relatively narrow swath of land. Uh, then we can drive one of our uh, emergency or mobile technology units, uh, basically up to the edge of the incident, um, and be able to stage equipment and personnel from from that uh, from that vehicle uh, and, and we have all sorts of different sizes of vehicles and we can talk about those later uh, where we can basically set up many emergency operation centers and and uh, deploy equipment from those vehicles um, so so those are kind of our, our major assets that we're able to move around the continental US um, we also have lots of different kits that we're able to uh, 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 get uh, and have let people bring in more portable fashion uh, but uh, so those are kind of like the the easy Deployments. I think COVID nineteen is a very relatively easy deployment uh, from a logistics standpoint, where we have all the all the all the major carriers. We can FedEx stuff around. Uh, we can easily have people just drive across the U.S. or 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 um, and there are lots of flights available. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Hurricane Maria, um, we have lots of great partners to in the logistics realm as well. So they're both the nonprofit partners as well as. Uh, commercial partners. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example from, from Puerto Rico. So, uh, we were trying to find a way to get, uh, volunteers and equipment onto the island, uh, in, uh, in the most ex, uh, expeditious fashion possible. And of, of course, uh, the airport was super congested and it was really, really hard to, to, to find a way onto the island. Um, but, uh, we one of our many many partnerships is with uh, Southwest, for example, um, and and we were our, our volunteers were like the only people in the cabin of the airplane as they flew their very first flight to the island uh, to try to reestablish um, their operations. So we we hitched a ride with them, uh, and it was just ITDRC volunteers and our equipment and, and the staff of the of the plane. So um, that was really cool. Um, we also have a number of other relationships with uh, with uh, air air providers as well, um, for example, through Airlink, um, And then there are a number of NGOs who also uh, provide flights like uh, disaster assistance response teams. Uh, so,
1: yeah, like for um, the other thing, like for uh, our response to the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas, um, uh, it's only about a 45 minute flight from Miami. Um, you know, so we were also at one point even chartering planes you know, it's kind of hanging around the airport saying, hey, if you're going over there, can we throw some stuff into your, into your plane? Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get it that way.
2: Yeah, so we get really creative.
3: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so uh, so the next logical question to me is where does this equipment come from, right? Like it's a lot of equipment. You mentioned, you mentioned vehicles. You mentioned um, obviously we know the networking gear. That's not cheap stuff. Um, there's lots of, you know, communication gears and radios and all kinds of things that come along with making all of this happen um is this donated um is it purchased with donated money like how do you guys actually get equipment to support the operations
1: yeah we uh uh, well so we um about I don't know up to about Hurricane Harvey so up to about 2016 2017 ish um probably 90 percent of the equipment that we got um was from integrators that had removed it from buildings as they were doing a project to upgrade the infrastructure um, so it was all enterprise grade gear. It's just you know it a little bit old. Um, Harvey, the Harvey, Irma, Maria hurricane stretch um, forced the the technology community, I think, to partner in ways that they really hadn't before. Um, and uh, that helped establish a lot of relationships with us and other companies. And I think that also then allowed us to turn a corner to where a lot of these technology companies were starting to donate excess inventory and things like that to us. So I'd say any more um, probably, uh, I don't know. Three quarters of our of our cash is relatively recent kit. Um, you know, it's not hand-me-downs anymore, um, with the exception maybe of laptops. Um, and uh, and that I think has been, uh, especially recently, has been one of the inspiring things. You know, like like Ruckus uh, donated, I think what like a million dollars worth of Wi-Fi equipment to us, to to support Project Connect and and getting a lot of these communities that have sometimes never even had internet online so that the students can continue their education. Um, So it's, uh, it's been pretty, pretty amazing to watch.
0: And uh, something that I heard Dustin say um, earlier, uh, two things, he mentioned kits, and he mentioned MTUs. So I wonder what's involved in a kit. And then MTU, he said it was a mobile transport unit. But I kind of want to talk about you know, what does that look like? Is that just like a, a Ford F-150 with some junk in the back? Or do you guys have, you know, real vehicles with a, you know, with an extendable arm and a satellite on the back? I'm, I'm trying to envision this in my
1: head. What are you guys working with? <laughs> yeah, we roll heavy. MTUs um, <laughs> and the T is technology, mobile technology units. Um, you might think of it as a mobile command center. Um, our, um, we have a 26 foot fifth wheel trailer that we drag Um, we have an 18 wheeler that we can drag out. Um, when you push the sides out of the, the trailer, it's actually about 900 square feet of, uh, workspace with a data center in the front. Um, and then we've got a 42 foot, uh, class a diesel pusher RV that the sides pop out and it's an operation center. Um, so yeah, when we, when we roll, we're, we're rolling big. Um, and then the, the kits are, you know, serve different purposes. We try to, we try as best we can to, to create kits that solve a single problem. So we have Wi-Fi kits and phone kits and things like that. um, That makes it a little easier. We end up typically having to break apart kits, which is always frustrating because you're never certain that the kit you pull out has all the stuff that's supposed to be in the kit to make the solution work. Um, But generally speaking, that's that's how it goes. Dustin can elaborate. He does a lot more of that uh, than I do.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I think, well, I I think Andrew nailed it. We have kits of, of all different sizes and shapes for different purposes. Um, right now, uh, for COVID-19, uh, we're deploying a lot of, they're not really kitified since we, we got a lot of the the equipment kind of, uh, last minute, uh, from, as part of that Ruckus donation. Um, but there is essentially like an AP and, uh, a router and security appliance, and that's kind of a stack and we shove it into uh, a building so that we can, we can provide expanded coverage for, for, um, for and access during COVID nineteen, um, but uh, but yeah, there's all sorts of different different uh, pieces of gear that we have that go into these. So, yeah. so when I
0: so when I imagine kit, I'm really imagining like a Pelican case, a Pelican yep. case, a briefcase style can fit a carry on, uh, overhead carry on luggage if you needed to. Um, but I kind of wanted to talk about. Because uh, because Andrew and I had a call a couple of weeks ago in getting this show ready and he talked about the kits and I said, I'm really interested in the tech. And he said, oh, that that's boring, that's boring. You know, it's just a, it's just a kit, you know, you show up with it, it works. But I think what's really important here is the sort of evolution of the technology in the kits that you guys deploy because I'm sure whatever you had years ago is not the same stuff that you have today. And I'm sort of figuring out what is the most efficient way To bring wi-fi and internet and and communications to these to these places that you guys help so uh what sort of equipment did you start out with what do you have now what what has worked and what hasn't throughout the years
1: yeah i i um this is this is always i think kind of the fun part of our organization because as you might imagine it people all have very different and strong opinions about the right way to do stuff um so one of the things i'll tell you about the kits is that you know they'll have varying degrees of success depending on your uh, your biases and opinions about some of this stuff, right? But um, uh, uh, in the past, um, uh, it, primarily our internet source was satellite. It was donated by Dish Network, and um, and so really, what it was is it was taking a dish setup, including the modem, um, and then trying to just extend the wireless that comes off that modem. Um, and it was it was pretty basic. And then uh, we started deploying. Uh, cradle points with my fives using the Wi-Fi's WAN um, and essentially doing the same thing. Obviously, it's a better user experience if I can make a cellular connection over a VSAT. Um, and uh, and so it's pretty simple. And then um, over time, we started getting better quality equipment donated to us. Um, and uh, that, that allowed us to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of our, our approach. Uh, but I would say still that, that um, the the equipment has gotten newer and to some degree the management capability has gotten better but you know we we i don't think we've deviated hardly at all in terms of our deployment patterns I mean, you know it's always whatever whatever the available internet source is we're going to lay that down um and then we're probably going to lay out a firewall that uh if possible even can give out the wi-fi and then that's it um because the fewer moving parts obviously the less we have to support. Um, and more importantly, the fewer, the, the less, the less gear that we lay out, the less likely that stuff's going to grow feet and walk away. Um, you know, so, um, so that's how we do it. But, uh um, you know, from there, I, I think me, I, I, you know, the, there are certain brands that I love. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tend to favor kits that have those. And, um, you know, I first met Dustin during the campfires in California, um, you know, and he, he's got a different approach to it than me. Um, you know, and it's not good or bad, right. It's just, do it different. So anyway, so the kits that, that Dustin was kind of assembling, you know, were, were favoring uh, the Meraki and Aruba equipment, partly because it was what we had on hand and partly because it was what he was real comfortable with. So
3: that brings up an interesting point that I want to talk about, because I mean, so we, we think about the um, incident response as kind of that initial push to get connectivity there. But often in these these scenarios, these are these are events that last for weeks or months, from a response perspective, like this this equipment goes out and it stays out because I think that, you know, I, we think about it, OK, the, the hurricane hits, everything's devastated. You go, you roll it out. Life is good. But the reality is, is now you have an IT infrastructure that needs to be managed. So you mentioned Meraki. Meraki has you know, this nice remote management capability versus some other gear where you're you're in locally. So, like, how does that look like? What is like day to day management look like once one of these kits is rolled out, like who you guys are maintaining responsibility for that? Or are you staying on site? Is it yeah. you roll it out and kind of roll back and, and let other people step in and do what they need to do and only come out when you need to? Like, what does that look like in the day to day?
2: That's a really good question, and it and it's interesting because because we are vendor agnostic and we use gear from all sorts of different platforms. Um, it 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 really depends a lot on what we have on hand and what we're able to deploy to uh, any given site. Um, but um, as you kind of alluded to, one of the one of the main things that we're really trying to push now is ability to 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 support and manage these sites over time. So uh, Puerto Rico, again, it's such a good example uh, of of what we were doing. but we had more we had almost a hundred sites across the island at, at the end of that operation just for Maria, and then we set up more for earthquakes that happened after that. Um, but how do we how do we manage these hundred sites? How do we check uh, when sites go down? How do we make sure that that the The clients are being protected um, without having to have a volunteer at every single site, because that's just not practical reality. Right. How do you you can't keep you can't keep our volunteers uh, in a disaster zone, um, 100 volunteers in our disaster zone just to kind of babysit each piece of equipment. Um, So so more and more the the gear that that we have um, is 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 we go away from having it locally managed and and having it more on a cloud managed um, scale. So um, as Andrea said, I'm I'm a little bit of a Meraki fanboy because I came from the Cisco world. Um, But Meraki does do an excellent job of of being able to uh, see the status of each of those um, routers in the field and each of the APs in the field. We can see when uh, APs are being overloaded, if we need to add additional. uh, Wi-Fi access if, we, if our backhaul uh, is is really bad, which happens all the time in disasters, um, do we need to uh, swap out the the VSAT for a cellular link? Um, and all of that we can do from from a cloud dashboard. Now, that's obviously not not only the domain of Meraki. Um, we're doing the same thing now with the Ruckus APs, uh, being able to see um, how many clients we have at each of our COVID-19 sites. Um, and, you know, now we have Let's see, somewhere around eighty-six sites that have been open for COVID nineteen. So, so being able to to keep tabs on each of these different sites without having to either SSH into an NAP or uh, or hit the command line at all, like that's really magic for us. So, um,
1: yeah. Oh no, I was I was going to add. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, the uh, you asked about the you know the deployment logistics and stuff like that. I mean, one of the challenges that we have is that. We may be in an area for a year or more sometimes. Um, you know, we are still deployed for um, uh, Hurricane Michael out in Mexico Beach, for example. Um, so the other thing in terms of our volunteers is we, we stage them. So not everybody goes out tip of the spear, because, partly because not everybody wants to go and eat MREs and sleep in the mud and that kind of stuff, right? Um, so we also try to stagger it out that you know, if you're new to the organization, we'll, we'll probably bring you in at a point where the operation is a little more mature um b- because that'll give you an opportunity to, to sort of become accustomed to what goes on there but without necessarily having a hardship of being there um and and so what we'll do is we'll start cycling people through so that we can keep the mission alive you know to cover that that distance
0: and and, and going back to uh the sort of how do you operate this at scale with hundreds of deployments all the time you know without without manning each individual kit or location um what do you guys do to actually get these kits deployed? Are, is every kit sort of greenfield? Does someone sit there and, and, and at the command line or at a web GUI and bring up each kit? Or are they sort of pre-deployed with with IP subnets and, and everything that you guys sort of feed into um, a deployment script or workflow or anything like that? How do you uh, guys
2: get that equipment pre-staged before it goes out? That's a great question. Um, really, we want to minimize the overhead for our field field volunteers. So uh, when you're out in a disaster, you've got all these things to think about, like, um, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to coordinate with? Where am I going to get my power from? Where, where am I going to get my backhaul from? So the last thing you want to wor- have to worry about is what is that esoteric command line thing that I have to type in in order to bring up the SD-WAN for for this piece of uh, for this router. Um, so, uh, all our all our gear that we ship out of the CS uh, that from from our warehouse, uh, we try as as much as possible to already have it to be pre-configured. Um, so whether that is already configured locally on the device uh, or that device checks in with with some cloud management platform and we're able to push the configuration down into into the field. Um, that really helps us to to lighten the load on the folks who need to do all the, all the layer one and layer eight uh, uh, interactions uh, out in the field. So, um, so they can worry about the cabling. They can worry about the power, and and hopefully, in theory at least, all you have to do is plug it in, and and then they'll have a, a wireless network or or a comms network. Um, and then we have a great um, a number of support staff uh, who are able then to manage these these pieces of gear remotely. Um, so not everyone who is a volunteer necessarily has to be out in the field. Um, like if you want to support a disaster, oftentimes you can support it from the comfort of your home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so uh, being able to uh, reconfigure a network, just you know, throw a password on a network uh, for the for the command staff. Um, with with the new tools that we have uh, with these cloud management platforms, that makes it really really easy, and and you don't have to be sitting in front of of their serial cable uh, in order to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, another thing we do. Our, some of our volunteers love it. Some of them hate it. Um, we actually have a virtual call center. So um, one thing that we actually do as a service is um, you may not, unless you've lived through a disaster, may not be aware of it. But you can hit usually after a disaster, they'll throw up two on one, and you can dial two one one and get information. Uh, there's an IVR there. They will add an option in the IVR to say, "I need help." Um, that IVR option, um, we offer a virtual call center that you can route that to us, and we'll field those calls um, and and help collect information about, you know, I need diapers or baby formula or gas or a ride to work or whatever, and and route those to the right places. So, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of remote support opportunities um, as well.
0: Wow, I I didn't know that, Jordan. Did you know that?
3: No. <laughs> that's, that's you you always think you always think about the, you, the incident response as being at the at the site, right? But it makes complete sense. I don't I don't approach a project and configure everything on site. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bootstrap as much as I possibly can before gear ever hits the ground wherever it's going, and I'm not putting it into a place where I don't know what I'm getting into. Like I know what I'm getting into, and I still do that because I have more control over the situation. So it only makes sense. But yeah, you just you don't think think about it much. I do wanna I do wanna kind of shift the conversation only because it's you know super relevant to now. I'd like to understand like what what the response has been for for COVID nineteen. Now we we've you know we've danced around it and some of the other things, but specifically, what does your uh, environment look like right now um, with this? Because I think this is unique because it's not quite you know, again, we think incident response as natural disaster, uh, pandemic is a, is a unique model. So what does it look like for you guys? What are you guys doing? How are you helping in this in this particular situation? We've talked about some of the pop-up facilities, maybe that's it. Uh, are there other things going on that are interesting? I'm just just curious.
1: If you want to I can talk about how it's changed our operational approach, and then maybe you can talk about Project Connect. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. So, um, From an operational standpoint, um, I'm Hazmat, I'm a hazmat technician. Um, We've got a lot of guys on the team that are um, firefighters and former firefighters. So we worked together to come up with our protocols for uh, how to keep all the volunteers safe. And, um, you know, there, there are um, training aspects that are important in terms of how to properly wear a mask, how to don and doff your gloves and, and that kind of safety equipment. And uh, so we worked through our protocols for that. Uh, the other thing is all this equipment now is uh, contaminated or should be considered dangerous. So we had to work through uh, how we're going to decontaminate equipment, or are we even going to decontaminate it, Are we just gonna leave it, leave it sit, right, and let it let it go away. Um, and, uh, and by building that, then that that allowed us then to more thoughtfully do our mission planning, which has really been what Dustin's been focused on.
2: Yeah, I can speak a little bit more towards um, what each of our sites support for COVID-19. So I think I mentioned earlier that we we had about 86 sites opened as of early last week. So that's grown quite a bit since then. But um, each of these sites is is different. Um, So we have some sites which support the public safety side of things. Uh, We have some sites which support um, medical shelters, quarantine facilities. Um, So, for example, uh, for some, uh, we got a call from the state of California's office of emergency services. Um, and they said, Hey, we need a way for the folks who are quarantined off one of these cruise ships to be able to communicate with their families effectively. Um, can you help us to do that? So, so we were able to send out, uh, laptops and and other tech gear, um, to, to provide, uh, to provide the devices that, that, uh, that they could use in order to do that. Um, for other, other sites like the um, uh, Texas Department of Emergency Management's COVID 19 testing sites, um, we were able to provide uh, a router and an AP to provide uh, wireless access for the, the folks who are working at the site to, to be able to use, um, to be able to connect and, and do their, their logging and, and all of that. Uh, we did something kind of similar in San Francisco, uh, pro- again, providing Wi-Fi uh, for an- another COVID-19 testing site. Um, and, and we have all sorts of different kind of mission types within, within this COVID-19 operation. But the biggest piece of what we're doing today is actually uh, what, w- what we call Project Connect, which Andrew mentioned before. Um, and that is, uh, that is an initiative that we started to kind of address the, the impact of, of social distancing that COVID-19 has created uh, on, on the community. So um, we know that with with social distancing, we have schools closed, we have libraries closed, uh, we have all these anchor institutions closed across the U.S. And these are the same institutions that many, many people used in order to get access to the internet, especially in these rural and underserved communities. Uh, in many cases, like you have the library in your town and that's the only building that has internet in your whole town. So, so then what do you do then? Like, how do you, how do you get access to the internet if you, if you, if that facility is closed? <clears throat> so what we're doing in, in with project connect is uh, trying to expand the, the Wi-Fi coverage um, from many of these anchor institutions into areas that people can still access uh, during social distancing, during this whole COVID-19 thing. And, and what we're doing is uh, we're basically cabling an AP uh, from many of the uh, of these buildings to an exterior access point, access point um, and covering a parking lot or a green space, uh, or somewhere where people can can literally drive up with their cars, uh, do their homework, uh, and still social distance um, so we 've seen pictures of, of folks who who are uh, kids who are sitting in like the the, the trunk of the minivan uh, doing, doing their homework, getting their assignments. Um, uh, out in these parking lots of these kind of drive-through Wi-Fi sites that we've set up, uh, and it's it's really cool to to be able to help uh, these cases. Um, I'll give you another another example. So uh, in Tatum's, Oklahoma, um, it was a town of about 150 people in, in rural Oklahoma, and uh, they there was hardly any internet in the town to start with, but they they still had 25 kids who needed to be able to. To access their school curriculum because their schools were closed, right? So, 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 what were they supposed to do? So, um, so, we were able to to bring a satellite connection and uh, and a Wi-Fi connection um, at their church. I think it was, um, and set that up outside the church so that people could come, kind of um, gather around the church, but still social, social distance and uh, and be able to to do their homework uh, or find employment opportunities um to to search for jobs or or do their digital banking online banking um all all of this requires the internet so um, if you don't have that how do you do it so that so again we're trying to fill in the gaps there with project connect we've set up tons of sites at uh, at libraries at schools at community centers um, at churches um and uh we're 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 really uh, pleased to be able to continue to do this. We have hundreds of sites that are, that continue to be in our queue. So, so uh, we're planning hundreds more sites uh, to to try to bring internet connectivity to the community um, for this purpose.
3: That's really cool. Um, I think uh, it's probably about time to start wrapping things up. And but before we go, what I want to do is I, I definitely want to talk about, like, how people can get involved. Because obviously this is a really cool organization um, driven by volunteers in, in multiple ways. And so let's start with people who, who, who maybe are technical or non-technical and want to volunteer their time. Like, what does that process look like and where do they go?
1: Oh, no, I mean, it's pretty easy. Um, it, it, the easiest way to do it is to go to itdrc.org. Um, there's a volunteer button on the site which will take you to a form to fill out. Um, don't be ashamed if you don't have all the skills the form is asking. You if you had, that's that's it's not a qualifying type thing. It's just we're trying to understand what we're getting, even if that's nothing. That's still okay. Um, you fill it. You know, you get that done. You get an email with a brand new ITDRC address and a, and an introduction to your original director. <laughs> it's pretty okay. Pretty Very cool.
3: So, so, so not painless and don't be bashful, right? So you yep. don't have to be some, you know, uh, Uber networking engineer or, you know, come with some, like, huge level of skill set. There's there's opportunities for everyone involved. We talked about earlier there's opportunities for all kinds of other operational skills, uh, project management, logistics, those types of things. So, like, if you've got anything Absolutely. you think you contribute, don't be bashful, right? What about vendors, uh, obviously, we're going to have lots of people who are vendors who are listening to this call, people who work for the major vendors. It sounds like you have relationships with, with some of them, but if they want to get involved, how do they get involved? Who do they reach out to? How do they start You know, working through the process of possibly donating gear or or skills or whatever? Is it the same thing? Go to the website, or is there another place that they should go um, to reach out? There is a contact
2: form on the website to be able to get a hold of us, uh, or folks can email us, email us at support.itdrc.org. At um, and, uh, that's, a, that's a great way to, 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 uh, start the conversation about how to build a relationship, uh, with, with your organization. Um, so if it's, whether it's, um, an organization that wants to send, uh, equipment, um, whether new or refurbished, um, or equip- an organization that wants to send volunteers or an organization that just wants to, you know, uh, help us find other partners who would help us to execute our missions. Yeah, um, things like
3: logistics. You, you yeah. mentioned the part- like air partners and exactly. shipping partners and those types of things. Like this isn't just technology. This is companies who want to get involved in enabling uh, the communications ability in, in places that are difficult. And there's all kinds of needs there,
2: right? Absolutely. And, and those relationships are critical to what we do. So we we definitely welcome folks to get in touch with us at support at org.
3: I don't know how many airline executives listen to our show, but you know, like if you're out there, like, yeah, <laughs> like they want well, to hear from you. So is there anything specific right now? Like, are there are there deficiencies or skill sets or things that you're looking for right now that is like, we could really use someone who does this um, w- within our community because, you know, maybe you have it, but there's not enough of it. Or maybe you just don't have it at all. Is there specific skills that like uh, you're looking for at the moment?
2: so so they're always always kind of going to be niche skills that that we're looking for at at any given time uh just an example from the last couple days i know we were looking for tower climbers to uh, support bringing internet connectivity to a community that had never had it um so uh, setting up point-to-point links for that um but uh really we welcome uh folks of all stripes whether technical or not um whether you're in uh, and hardcore into the data center stuff or or you're into marketing and project management, we welcome everyone to, to join us for that. I, w- I will say that for Project Connect specifically, um, if folks have ideas of uh, where they want to set up, <clears throat> where there are needs for for internet connectivity, um, especially uh, for like, for example, for rural or, or underserved neighborhoods uh, or, or tribal lands, um, those are... Uh, those are sites that we really want to be able to get into our queue um, as quickly as possible so that we can prioritize the resources as, as we need to. Um, again, we really want to be able to connect communities that, that have had difficulty getting access to the internet so that they can uh, find employment resources, so that their children can, can access school resources uh, and, and do what it is they need to do. Bridging the digital divide is, is really, really important to what we're doing. Yeah.
3: Sure. And and the last piece, and I, I I definitely don't think it's the least important piece, all this takes money, right? Like all this, all this happens because, you know, while there's a lot of volunteers and a lot of donations and a lot of help, there's still this stuff that just costs money. Uh, Sometimes you have to buy a plane ticket. Sometimes you have to ship something. Sometimes you have to do something and there's not someone who's going to do that for you for free. So someone wanted to support it, but just didn't initially have the time. Doesn't necessarily have connections with a company who can give you something. How does someone donate? Like how does someone like just say, Hey, like I want to pledge a little bit here. Uh, how do, how do they do that?
1: Uh, same thing. Uh, go itdrc.org. There's a big red donate button that you can hit. Um, you know, we take cash and uh, you know, cryptocurrency and, you know check. oh so you can do it anonymously nice yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, <laughs> not uh, sure
3: why you would need to but okay
1: well like, yeah, sure. you want if, if you wanted to understand our our cash need uh, if you go to deployments.itdrc.org, um you can see every every mission and network we've stood up since 2008 um, that'll give you an idea of what our burn rate is if you're not sure <laughs> what it takes to actually make these things happen yeah yeah
3: <laughs> got it all right that's cool that's cool transparency is always good um so how about you guys individually so you guys have shared a lot about what you're doing it's very cool uh can we find you guys anywhere online if people wanted to follow along and and maybe participate in community with you guys dustin i'll start with you are you on anything social media wise where people can find you sir so
2: i i am notoriously social media shy um, okay you can't right. find me on twitter but I, that was I created my Twitter account back in the day where I, I didn't really think that Twitter was going to be a thing. So uh, my my Twitter account is is uh, on Google Plus when I was really into Google Plus um, on
3: Google Plus. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh,
2: yeah. So you but you won't really find anything there. Um, really, if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn is probably the best way
3: to, to, to okay. get hold of me. And Dustin Lee, and just oh, set yes. your name, and yeah, awesome. All right, Andrew, how about you? Do you have any yeah. uh, online presence?
1: Uh, a little bit. Um, I, I I'm kind of like Dustin. I'm I'm a little bit shy on social media. Um, also a little bit lazy. Um, you know, so that doesn't. Yeah, help. it sounds
3: like it. <laughs> yeah. With all the volunteer stuff you do, yeah, it sounds like you're lazy. That's how yeah. I um, categorize it. But,
1: but yeah, you, you can you can hit me on. I mean, I, I'm not terribly active on Twitter, but mine's um, systems management Zen, but it's mgmt Zen. Okay. Uh, is my handle. And uh, uh, it, it's probably hard to find. Andrew White's a pretty common name. Um, uh, but uh, andrew.p.white at gmail.com is my email. You can email me. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get tons of spam now, but uh, you can email I me.
3: I won't post a link on the website. So if, if if Thanks. people want it, they'll have to actually yeah. transcribe it themselves. That, yeah. We'll try to protect you as much as we can.
1: Yeah, you can email me or, or that, that's how you'd find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the other easy way to get a hold of me
3: all right sounds good uh thanks guys tony how about you man where can people find you online um tony e at show
0: ip interface brief on uh, twitter and uh, my youtube channel youtube.com forward slash tony e
3: yeah all right i'm at bc Jordan on twitter if you like this there's a lot more like it right so you can head over to networkcollective.com. we have tons of episodes on on technology and cool things happening in the technology space Um, This was cool, a bit unique talking to an organization that's doing something unique. Usually our shows are more focused on either a a protocol or some of the things that are happening uh, within the industry from an industry perspective. But this was a this was a neat little twist. Um, to to talk about how technology is being applied in, in really cool ways in, in difficult situations. Um, but yeah, so lot, lots and lots of networking goodness at networkcollective.com. Uh, we definitely want to engage with you as a podcast as well. We're at Net PC on Twitter. You can find us as uh, Network Collective Podcast on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So I think that's about it. I uh, really, really appreciate you guys listening today, and we will see you next time.